This is London Lopez at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. Why were so many people motivated to participate in the January 6th assault on the Capitol? And can we expect similar actions in the future? To find some of the answers, we have invited Dr. Martha Crenshaw, the co-author of Countering Terrorism, to be our guest on today's show. She's a senior fellow emerita at the Center for International Security and Cooperation and Stanford University's Freeman Spolye Institute for International Studies and a professor emerita at Wesleyan University who's been teaching and writing about political science and terrorism since 1972. Welcome to our show. Thank you. In an op-ed that you published in the New York Times on February 10th that was headed, I've studied terrorism for over 40 years, let's talk about what comes next. Your subhead was, we spent decades looking for a threat from overseas when we needed to be looking closer to home. But hasn't domestic terrorism been on the rise and weren't there plenty of warnings that we had a serious domestic problem? Well, you know, you have a very good point there because there were warnings and I would argue that we had more warnings of the building of this threat than we did for the 911 attacks, uh, which were, in my view, more more of a shock. Uh, But warnings, uh, I think, accumulate over time in a gradual sort of process and perhaps uh, authorities simply did not take them seriously enough. I, I think many people simply did not expect violence. They did not expect such, uh, such a large crowd. Uh, they did not expect uh, an assault on the Capitol. Uh, obviously, there are arguments now as to whether there were signals that were missed. Um, obviously, arguments on both sides, yes and no. Uh, but I think that probably we're going to have to look very deeply into why we missed the signals. Again, this was a very gradual process building, so perhaps it was the very gradualism of it that made people less less alert to the signs. But last October 6th, didn't the Department of Homeland Security, that was under uh, Donald Trump, release a threat assessment stating that ideologically motivated lone offenders and small groups pose the most likely terrorist threat to the homeland with domestic violent extremists presenting the most persistent and lethal threat. And, and the DHS expressed particular concern about white supremacists, violent extremists. So uh, we were warned. Uh, we were warned, and uh, I should add for full disclosure that among my other activities, I'm the principal investigator uh, with a consortium that is sponsored and funded by DHS. It's one of the DHS centers of excellence. Uh, it's headquartered at the University of Nebraska at Omaha. And so uh, as of uh, last summer, uh, I've been supported in my research on right-wing extremist groups. So yes, DHS has been concerned about the matter. And you're quite right that it appears in public statements, uh, not only by DHS, but also by the FBI. So that does raise a question as to why if this was a public position uh, mm-hmm. of a government agency, uh, more attention was not paid uh, to this particular problem. Again, you know, we we could compare the buildup to 911, uh, the 911 commission report that accused the intelligence agencies of not connecting the dots 
So again, we have a problem. Why weren't the dots connected when at a higher level, the threat was recognized? Similarly, before 911, uh, George Tenet, the CIA director, uh, said we were at war against terrorism. It was a number one priority. Yet that kind of um, establishment of priorities didn't always, I think, percolate down uh, to the lower levels of bureaucracies. A question asked in this week's congressional hearings is whether the key officials who are in charge of security on January 6th took the threat of domestic terrorism seriously. But getting back to that DHS report, they warned that some elements might target, quote, events related to the 2020 presidential campaigns, the election itself, election results, or the post-election period. That was pretty prescient. It was certainly clear and more detailed than sometimes such warnings are. So it, it is an important question. And I can imagine that as a political scientist, we would look, look for a number of different explanations. One is sort of bureaucratic inertia, that a pronouncement is made at the top of an organization that says, this is our priority now. But at lower levels of an organization, uh, organizational culture, for example, dictates otherwise that, for example, you, you were focused on criminals if you are in the FBI and you're not gonna shift your focus just because someone at the top level said, we have a new threat there. Uh, again, these are very, very, very large uh, bureaucracies, uh, multiple problems to deal with all the time. And it's very difficult, you know, I think I, um, I've mentioned this in other interviews that uh, changing the focus of a government bureaucracy is like altering uh, the path of an aircraft carrier. They are large and massive and very, very slow to turn. And some people would like to change the focus in other ways. Uh, uh, Senator Ron Johnson of Wisconsin claims that the attack on January 6th was led by fake Trump supporters, uh, Antifa members in disguise. And, and Missouri Senator Josh Hawley criticized the DHS for claiming the U.S. faces a heightened threat from domestic terrorism. He's even opposed the domestic terrorism law. Well, it's certainly true that there seems to be a current of opinion that denies that groups such as the Proud Boys, the Oath Keepers, the Three Percenters had anything uh, to do with it. Uh, I think that the evidence suggests otherwise, uh, but I think certainly more and more information is coming out about this. At the moment, the FBI has charged members of the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers with participation in the uh, assault, and they've not charged any adherence to Antifa ideology. It, it tends to be a much, a, an even less organized sort of movement uh, than some of the other groups like Proud Boys or Oath Keepers or the base, Three Percenters, uh, et cetera. Uh, it's a very fragmented movement uh, overall. Uh, but I why do you think these senators are, are engaging in, in this kind of denial? Is it Has this whole thing become political instead of a real thing to be dealt with? Well, it has not become political. It has always been political. <laughs> the, uh, it's always been a very contentious matter 
to focus on the far right and to accuse these groups uh, of violence or, or of uh, terrorism or uh, various sorts of, uh, sort of crimes. It, it's been contentious for a long time. Uh, some of the listeners may recall that a few years back, DHS precisely issued a report on the possibilities of right-wing violence, and they were roundly condemned by a number of congressional charge that the far right could be involved in political violence. So it's been contentious for for quite a long time. So this is not exactly new. It may be more intense now. The divisions, I think we would say, are, are greater now than they have been. They've been just the opinions have been growing wider and wider apart over the years. Um, it's going to be very difficult to restore any kind of consensus on what the threat is. You've noted that from the 1970s to the 1990s, the U.S. experienced different kinds of domestic terrorism from left-wing student activists, Puerto Rican separatists, anti-Castro Cubans, and also far-right militias. Now, most of those groups are gone other than the far-right militias. So what's changed? Well, some of the causes behind these movements uh, largely dissipated in terms of uh, the far left. Uh, you recall that was associated with uh, the anti-war movement, anti-Vietnam War, associated with general student uh, dissatisfaction and unrest, associated also with uh, the rise of revolutionary movements in the developing world, uh, in Latin America, uh, the Palestinian movement, uh, so that there was a lot of identification of domestic leftists with uh, what they regarded as revolutionary and nationalist heroes abroad, uh, all of these sorts of uh, motivating factors begin to fade away. The war is over, uh, reforms uh, in, the, uh, uh, in universities in the United States, uh, disillusionment with some of the violence by other actors abroad, so it all sort of began uh, to fade away. In terms of uh, nationalist groups, uh, the Puerto Rican separatists and anti-Castro Cubans, uh, these groups were largely uh, you know, wrapped up by the FBI. Uh, and so, and the, similarly with some of the uh, far left groups. Uh, so you had a, a, an FBI that was pretty efficient at rap, at basically just infiltrating them usually and bringing them to an end. And Are they that, doing something similarly with the, with the, uh, the groups that we're seeing today? Yes, absolutely. They are the infiltration levels. I, of course, I don't know. And you don't know only the FBI knows until we find out afterwards when we read about it in trial records or indictments. But yes, I feel sure I actually was just reading an account of a movement in Michigan some years ago, it was called the Hutteri group. And uh, the leader uh, when he married his second wife, as it turns out, his best man was actually the FBI agent who had <laughs> infiltrated the group. So, yes, there is quite a lot of infiltration, which leads to a level of uh, suspiciousness within these groups that often uh, keeps them from, from being particularly cohesive as organizations. 
After 9-11, the focus shifted to combating global terrorist threats from al-Qaeda and the Islamic State. But in the United States today, don't we actually have more violence committed by far-right groups than from groups associated with transnational Islamism? Yes, and that's been true for uh, for several years, that uh, many, many more uh, attacks by far-right groups. Uh, again, uh, attacks from different entities and sources within a very large amalgamated uh, sort of movement, a much less coherent unified threat than from Al-Qaeda or ISIS, which has, you know, is hierarchical, uh, centrally directed. Even when they're calling for their followers to launch attacks, it comes from a central leadership. So a much more uh, coherent, cohesive threat uh, than from the right. But yes, uh, I think that U.S. authorities have been quite successful in um, dampening down this threat. It still, it still exists. We all recall the attack on the Pensacola Naval Air Station uh, by someone who was uh, a Saudi, a student uh, taking, you know, enrolled in courses there in Pensacola. Uh, so it's not that it's gone away entirely. Also, the fact that we have put so much pressure on ISIS and al-Qaeda operations abroad uh, has made it very hard for them to organize attacks within the country. So yes, in terms of numbers, certainly the, the far right dominates. Dr. Martha Crenshaw is my guest today on Leonard Lopate at Large here on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. Haven't people who studied terrorism found it difficult to define it? You say it's what we call a contested concept. That is certainly true. There's been arguments about what is terrorism for, certainly for as long as I've studied it, which is quite a long time. And uh, you're going to find these debates popping up again with uh, discussion as to whether we need new domestic anti-terrorism laws or whether our existing laws can cover the sorts of crimes that are involved in acts of terrorism quite satisfactorily. Uh, most of us regard terrorism as a form of political violence. So we regard it as something that has to have a political intent behind it. Uh, I regard terrorism as conspiratorial or clandestine violence, uh, not so much public displays of violence as we saw in the assault on the Capitol uh, or violent demonstrations. And I would make the point that there can be extremely objectionable forms of violence, very destructive forms of violence that are not terrorism, that every form of violence that we think is particularly damaging or morally objectionable is not necessarily terrorism. There are other forms uh, as well. So what I was concerned about, and when I wrote the editorial for the New York Times, was what happens now? Will these groups that are very frustrated about these things, I've got to turn this off, whether they will turn to underground conspiracies and terrorism and uh, essentially uh, transform themselves into what we would genuinely refer to as terrorist organizations. There has been violence uh, that resembles terrorism. It's uh, in effect always a, a surprise attack on a 
target who's not expecting to be attacked, but usually by uh, very small numbers of people, uh, small groups, again, operating in, in secrecy rather than operating in public. It's also been called grievance populism. Is well, that a good description? Well, that's an interesting sort of term. And there's actually a debate among students of political violence as to what the role of grievance actually is in the organization of violence. Are, are people genuinely motivated by grievances or are they motivated by uh, more perhaps psychological factors, uh, feelings of anger, humiliation, uh, loss of status? Uh, there's, a, there's a very big debate about how all these factors fit in together, sort of situational factors, social, political factors, and then sort of emotional, psychological factors within these groups. Uh, psychological traits, for example, that might lead people to believe in conspiracy theories, conspiratorial thinking, for example. All this really needs to be studied in more depth depth and with great objectivity, I might add. And sometimes I imagine it's rather difficult to spot this. A lot of people who are terrorists appear to be as normal as everybody else, at least uh, in their everyday lives. But because terrorists subscribe to ideas that are very different from the ones I was brought up to believe in, I find it difficult to understand the psychology behind their attraction to terrorism, uh, despite the fact the, uh, the terrorists are not other, but part of us. Well, that's, you know, we've studied the psychology behind terrorism for years now. It really began in the 1980s, sort of the study of terrorism as a subject begins in the early 1970s. It grows very, very slowly. In the 1970s, there truly were fewer than, say, 10 of us who, who studied terrorism. It, it was not really thought of as a very respectable subject. And in the 1980s, people began to look at the psychological dimensions of it. And you're quite right that when we say that there's a psychological dimension to participation in violence, we don't mean that these are people who are uh, clinically, clinically mentally ill. It's simply that there may be certain psychological traits that predispose people to the kind of thinking that would lead them to think that violence is permitted and not only permitted, but morally justified. Uh, often people think of themselves as victims. They don't think of themselves as the aggressors, uh, but as the victims. And they often see themselves as uh, enacting vengeance on a government or on another body of people who committed crimes against them. You can see how that fits into a sense of victimhood that you then need now to avenge yourself or uh, the group that you identify with, your people, a strong sense of solidarity with an in-group that leads you to wish to commit acts of violence against uh, the out-group so that you classify an entire category of people, say all policemen, all government officials, all members of a different religion than yours and you see them as the, the enemy entirely. So it's a certain uh, black and white thinking, we would say, that, that keeps you from being able to empathize with people whom you regard as different. Do they also seek publicity? Well, publicity is one of the main functions of terrorism because if you have very small numbers and you can't bring 
800 or however many people participated in the assault on the Capitol, you can't bring those people together, which gets you a lot of publicity, then what can you do as a group of 10, 15, 20, 30 people? Well, a spectacular act of terrorism gets you that publicity with very low commitment of resources on your part. Planning, yes. Good organization, yes. Careful targeting, yes. Willingness to kill innocent people, yes. But it doesn't take large numbers. You've said that one of the problems uh, is connecting the dots in the far-right extremist universe. But don't most terrorist groups claim to be strategic actors with defined goals and methods of operation? Well, I, I think of terrorism as strategic, and I think most of them think of it as strategic insofar as they think about strategy. When I began to argue that these people were highly strategic and that being strategic did not mean that you might not have psychological qualities that might predispose you to the use of violence, but you could still think uh, strategically. Uh, other people who had studied these groups said, they don't sit around plotting strategy. They're just focused on action and they don't really plan very much ahead of time. But I think most of them do think of themselves as having a goal and as undertaking actions in pursuit of that goal. And then the problem for us is to figure out what is their goal and why do they think that violence is the means of achieving it and turning sort of to how do you deal with it can you convince people that they can have the goal that they want if their goal is to whatever it might be, as long as they don't use violence in the pursuit of that goal? Uh, we're not going to say, for example, that, uh, say, Puerto Rican separatism is unacceptable as a goal so much as that you can believe that there should be an independent Puerto Rico, but using violence in the service of the cause is not acceptable and will be punished by the law. But it's also a way of attracting other people to your cause, isn't it? It is, although sometimes these groups miscalculate and they commit acts of violence that actually offend the very people whose support they would like to seek. Uh, you see this, I think, in many cases of the use of terrorist sorts of violence that finally they have just done something that the people who might have supported them think enough is enough. Uh, for example, in Egypt, uh, some years ago, there was a, a radical Islamist group, and some of the listeners may remember this. They bombed tourists at the Temple of Luxor, mm. which is a very popular tourist attraction, a very beautiful monument. And the result was that people who were sort of sympathetic to them just turned off entirely, turned them into the authorities, because first of all, attacking tourists, innocent people. And second, it just decimated the Egyptian tourist industry. And a lot of people lost their livelihoods because of that attack on tourists. So uh, they can certainly miscalculate and go too far. Why are there so many far-right extremist uh, groups in this country? We have the Oath Keepers, the Proud Boys, the Three Percenters, the Base, the Rise Above Movement, the Boogaloo Boys, the Wolverine Watchmen Militia. Uh, did, it's surprising because don't they pretty much all agree on m most of the same things? Well, actually, there are there are differences uh, among them. For example, the Proud Boys uh, it tends to be um, all male, 
and uh, it uh, calls itself Western Chauvinist. Hmm. Uh, it says it's not white, white supremacist, that it's Western Chauvinist. Uh, other groups, such as the Oath Keepers, distinguish themselves by recruiting among uh, police and military, usually former and, police. And, and their leader is a woman. Hmm? And the, the leader of the Oath Keepers is a woman. Yes, they have women in the Oath Keepers, uh, very much so. Uh, so each there are differences among the groups, and there are ideological differences. I, I think that we, uh, we sort of uh, lump them all together as uh, far-right extremists, but there are actually very important differences, and differences that might matter a lot if we're going to bring the problem uh, under control. Uh, again, the people they recruit, the kind of message they send, uh, their targets, their willingness to use violence, uh, for example, the militia movement, which has been around for quite a long time, uh, Timothy McVeigh, the uh, bomber, mm -hmm. the Oklahoma City bomber, 1995, was sort of someone who operated on the fringes of the militia movements. He wasn't really, uh, as we understand it, a member, but he was sort of a militia wannabe, uh, hanger on uh, of these movements. Uh, you know, there, there's a number of those movements that really are not engaged so much in violence. They, they like to be armed. They collect weapons. So that there, there are a number of, uh, of distinctions among these groups that we really need to understand more about it. Uh, uh, Timothy McVeigh was uh, considered a lone wolf perpetrator. Another one was Dylan Roof. Mm -hmm. um, so do they uh, express sense of connection to some of the, uh, the these groups? Uh, and, and yeah, well, I guess that's the question. You, you said that uh, Timothy McVeigh did to some degree, but he wasn't a member. That's right. Uh, and that brings up an interesting question of how do we look at this problem of so-called lone wolves? And are they really lone wolves? Uh, in the case of McVeigh, he did have uh, some Confederates, it was uh, Terry Nichols, and he certainly hung around uh, militia movement uh, sorts of events. And I think probably could be said to have identified with them, even though perhaps they didn't trust him. He, he, wasn't, he wasn't a very active member of these groups. Then you have people like uh, Dylan Roof and others, like him in New Zealand, uh, in Norway, uh, other countries, who uh, get their information from the internet, who, uh, who post manifestos on the internet as a, a way of communicating with other people and recruiting supporters. And so what they're trying to do is to inspire imitation. So to say that these people are entirely lone wolves when they are inspired by what other people have done and inspired by propaganda that they access on the internet, they're really not so lone at all. And they think of themselves as being part of a larger movement. The same thing can be said for people like Omar Mateen, uh, the Orlando uh, shooter. And he was not directed by ISIS or Al Qaeda but he thought of himself as acting in their name and on their behalf. So this and these groups have deliberately called for lone wolves, quote unquote, to act. Anybody who can 
is called on to act. So you can't say that they really were alone. I think they're quite different from, for example, the Unabomber, uh, Ted Kaczynski, who, who I think of as genuinely a lone wolf without, uh, without support, without a larger movement that he identified with. You said that the, uh, the various groups do have differences. Have there been struggles for power within these far-right white supremacist and neo-Nazi groups? I think you see some struggles for power, but uh, and there certainly has been a, a leadership transition within some of these groups. Uh, but what you find with these groups, and again, we're we're studying them in more depth now. They are not as structured and as organized as other groups that we've looked at, whether uh, groups, revolutionary groups on the left, nationalist groups, Islamist groups. They're not highly structured. There is a structure, but I think because we, and I speak, I say we as researchers and analysts, have sort of been accustomed to seeing a very um, hierarchical sort of structure in these groups with different roles for different people, uh, kind of rules of succession. Uh, we're perhaps not quite understanding how they're structured and we need to understand the effect of social media on how they organize themselves. Now, a big question is, are these groups gonna start competing with each other to kind of dominate this violent right-wing universe? And we see that in other milieu, in the Islamist milieu and nationalist milieu, that when you have a number of different groups, they ostensibly share the same goal, but each wants to dominate that movement. They want to come on, out on top. If they get what they want, they want to be the one governing the country or whatever their ambition is. So they compete with each other to the extent of using violence against each other. Uh, this is sometimes referred to as outbidding in extremism or uh, competitive escalation of a struggle. And what it means is that levels of violence are likely to go up because each one wants to outdo the other. Now, we haven't, I don't think we've seen that so far, uh, but that's something that, again, looking forward, we'd say, well, if, if the pattern of far-right violent groups follows the patterns of other violent groups, this is what might happen, and we might see more violence in the future because they're all fighting with each other. At least 30 law enforcement officers have been identified as part of the mob at the Capitol. So should we be surprised by how many of the insurrectionists were former military police officers and sheriffs? And, and is it likely that, that they also were members of these groups, or are they mostly just people who felt uh, a certain complicity? Well, the latter is a, is a very good question, and I assume the FBI is looking very closely into this. Are these people who were inspired by the events surrounding uh, the election and the Stop the Steal movement and calls for uh, protests to simply feel that they had to act without having had any connection with any kind of organized group or named group, let us say, or were they participants in these groups all along? Now, there's been concern about this for a long time, particularly the uh, presence of right-wing extremist elements within uh, the U.S. military. Uh, and as you know, the Pentagon has recently issued a report, but I've not seen a copy and I don't know anybody who has. I presume eventually it will, uh, it will come out. And you know that 
the Secretary of Defense uh, has said that he's going to investigate this very closely. So I think it is a cause for alarm. Uh, as I say, we don't really know the level of their participation, whether it was sort of accidental and spontaneous uh, responding to various appeals to come to Washington and then appeals to march on the Capitol, uh, how many people were sort of swept up in the moment rather than planning uh, to engage in violence. And we just don't really know this yet, but it, it it's a very serious concern. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. Terrorism is glorious. Terrorism is great. Let's all be terrorists before it's too late. Before it's unfashionable. Before it's passive. My guest today on Muttered Located at Large is Martha Crenshaw, who, among other things, is one of the founders of the University of Maryland's National Consortium for the Study of Terrorism and Responses to Terrorism, uh, START. Uh, and I think that part of the problem is that uh, uh, one of the, the things that makes all of this so fascinating is that we, uh, that these people don't feel like the rest of us. Uh, but you, you point, is the Second Amendment a, a major uh, connection for so many of them? Because you point out that the easy availability of weapons in the United States increases the risk of terrorism. And haven't terrorist groups in other democracies had to scramble to find weapons, as with the Irish Republican Army in Northern Ireland, which had to resort to getting arms from Libya? That's not a problem here. That's true. And I think it's fair to say that the prevalence and availability of weaponry simply makes violence more likely because you have people who have access to the means of violence that they might not otherwise have. Uh, that's not to say that uh, these sorts of groups and individuals can't be extremely inventive in building bombs or stealing weapons or smuggling weapons. Uh, certainly, even where there are restrictions on uh, gun purchases and explosives, it, uh, if with enough determination. But here, it doesn't require much of anything in order to uh, to arm yourself. And note that after the Oklahoma City bombing, we did restrict access to uh, ingredients of explosives like fertilizers and other um, other materials that could be used to uh, to make bombs. Uh, because what we were really afraid of then was uh, was bombings. Uh, now we're more afraid of uh, of guns, but of course there's always the risk of bombings as well. You know, the two small pipe bombs were left in Washington yeah. uh, during the Capitol uh, assault. Uh, they were not likely to have caused a lot of destruction, but they 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 could have caused some destruction. Certainly could have been lethal, and certainly could have been. Uh, very frightening. So I do regard and that. We've, and we've been uh, hearing about Molotov cocktails as well. Yes, yes, which are very easy to make, mm. unfortunately, and, and can, again, can, under the right circumstances, cause a good bit of damage. There can be all kinds of weapons that can be used in these sorts of circumstances. But you also referred to the fact that defense of the Second Amendment is part of one of the motivating forces uh, behind uh, the formation of these groups and behind their various protests. They seem to feel that their weapons are going to be 
taken away from them and that uh, they have to defend their right uh, to have these weapons and that in some cases this does provide a motive uh, for violence. And uh, that argument about uh, the Second Amendment, of course, has been going on for quite some time, and it just now has become part of sort of a this building crisis that, again, has has been gradually building for some time that perhaps we simply didn't realize that it would erupt in this kind of crisis. You cite the political scientist Ian Lustig, who described one form of terrorism as solipsistic violence intended to incite to excite the faithful, but not terrorize the enemy. So yes. that's kind of like publicity. <laughs> yes. It's kind of like publicity, uh, uh, hope to attract imitators, uh, inspire hopes of, of uh, the sort of race war or, or apocalyptic conflict that some far right militants hope will happen in the future. That's uh, the, what he was writing about, uh, and uh, this is a chapter in a book that I edited many years ago, uh, I think about 1995, called Terrorism in Context. And my argument was that you really couldn't understand terrorism without understanding the social, political, historical context for it. And uh, he was writing about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and how, in his view, over time, the use of violence by one side or the other was really meant to uh, enthuse supporters rather than really inflict any kind of pain or punishment on the enemy. It was to gain this support uh, from, uh, from people by showing them that you represented their cause. And that his argument was that as long as that was the purpose of violence, that it really was interdirected, that it would be very difficult to bring it to an end. But when violence becomes more strategic, it might be possible to bring a conflict uh, to an end. So with regard to our present situation, yes, you could look at some forms of violence. You could look at the assault on the Capitol as a way of generating support among the faithful rather than actually accomplishing the infliction of some sort of harm on an adversary. So if you followed this argument, you would say the purpose, insofar as there was a purpose, uh, behind trying to take over the Capitol was really not the thought that they could overturn the results of the election, but just to show their supporters that they were energetic and enthusiastic and active on behalf of the cause and just in effect to build support. And uh, achieve a large psychological shock effect uh, because the act itself communicates a message. Yes. Very much so. The act is the message in itself. And then that's amplified, of course, by communication via social media, largely now, uh, Facebook, Twitter. And as yet, we don't really know the effects of banning these groups from their access to social media. Uh, that's been a fairly new thing. But obviously, there's a large debate over in a democracy to what extent you can restrict the power to communicate from from groups uh, is are they inciting violence? What is an incitement to violence? We're obviously having a, a very uh, vociferous debate about this now.
Well, this is all. Uh, th this is what has changed in recent years, hasn't it? Because uh, earlier uh, terrorist groups didn't have this technology. They didn't have Facebook and Twitter and the like uh, as a way of communicating. And suddenly, uh, I, ca I can understand why uh, the, uh, the various uh, social media companies would be concerned. But uh, as you point out, where do we draw the line between protecting ourselves while also protecting the freedoms of speech, association, and assembly? It's, it is a really delicate balance. And that's one of the reasons I think that we should pause and think carefully before embarking on new uh, measures to control uh, this threat uh, before we embark on large legislative packages like we did in the aftermath of 911. Think through very carefully the unintended consequences of these actions that could be entirely well meant, but have various other consequences. And you're quite right that this is a means of communication that was not available to earlier groups in history. Over time, they had to rely on pamphlets and newspapers uh, in the old days. And then at the beginning of the technological age, they recorded messages on cassettes, if anybody remembers when we had cassettes to play. Uh, for example, Islamist clerics recorded their sermons on these cassettes that were then circulated among followers and potential followers. And this is the way they gained support. And now you have a post on Facebook or a tweet on Twitter that serves the same purpose, but can reach so many more people and so quickly. Now, there was a post 9-11 commission uh, to uh, to try to figure out what really happened. There seems to be a lot of resistance to doing something similar uh, in this post-January 6th situation. Well, I think, the, I think the reasons against it are the fear that it would develop into a largely partisan exercise and exacerbate tensions it? rather than resolve the issues. But isn't uh, it a partisan issue? I see issue? now that there's some dispute over how many Democrats and how many Republicans would be on such a commission. Uh, and then probably there's a fear that these commissions Oh, they last a long time. <laughs> it sometimes takes years to produce a report. Uh, sometimes the consensus report is rather bland rather than being hard hitting. And we really need to do something more quickly than appointing yet another uh, commission. And if I might add just a small digression, many, many years ago, when before I became a college professor, I worked for the Congressional Research Service in Washington, which is an excellent organization. And one of my tasks was to look into all these committees and commissions and task forces that had been appointed by Congress to investigate different foreign policy issues. There were hundreds of them. I tracked them all down and many of them never issued a report at all. They met and met and met and then they just sort of disbanded and faded away. So I'm not saying that's likely to happen, but that's always sort of the fear when you appoint a commission. Uh, that said, certainly uh, a commission of nonpartisan people with real expertise in uh, these sorts of issues could, I think, contribute by interviewing people and issuing a report that tried to give us 
uh, an unbiased and balanced judgment about why this happened. But when you, it is a partisan issue when you have uh, senators uh, claiming that uh, that the extremists weren't extremists, uh, you're already making it into uh, a, a partisan issue. And on top of it all, of course, we just had an impeachment trial, uh, which uh, suggested that uh, it all had a political base. So uh, can we avoid talking in partisan terms when we discuss things like this? Well, I think perhaps you and I can avoid talking about it in partisan terms, but among our political elites, no, probably not. Uh, we have a lot of elections. We have uh, congressional representatives who face re-election every two years. Uh, they're always thinking about their audience, about the voters. Uh, we already have everyone now lining up for the 2024 presidential campaign. So the degree of partisanship, even in foreign policy, uh, really has grown more and more acute over the years. And I think that you are probably right that it will be impossible to escape partisanship in this, no matter how much say President Biden might want to have an extremely neutral uh, commission, it, it, it will be very difficult. And I would think that it'd be hard to reach agreement on who to appoint, uh, sadly. Uh, so that's another reason for thinking carefully about plunging into the idea of a commission. Terrorism expert Martha Crenshaw is our guest today on London Lopate at Large on WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. You write that it's unlikely that those who promoted the January 6th assault will draw such impressive crowds into the streets in the future. Why? I think actually that now that the authorities, uh, law enforcement, uh, security services are aware of this potential and of this possibility, uh, they're not going to be taken off guard again for whatever reason. I remember some of the reasons were, well, there was the optics of using the National Guard. Uh, so I think that people will no longer be afraid of the optics of using high levels of security if they think that there is likely to be the, that sort of assault again. I also think that uh, some of the people who participated in protests and in the assault on the Capitol probably have had second thoughts. I think that uh, some of them really didn't expect that they would be prosecuted, uh, that there would be punishment. Uh, if they had expected it, I think they would not have posted pictures of themselves, posted selfies on their Facebook pages, or tweeted about having participated. So I think that people who were caught up in the spur of the moment and did not expect either what happened or expect to be punished for it are not going to come out again. And again, the authorities will be much better prepared for them. Although they probably were proud of the fact that they were part of a coup that they thought were going to, was going to succeed. Um, but you also say that the true believers who remain after mass action recedes will likely grow even more intolerant, rigid, and inclined to see traitors at every turn. And that any cooperation on President Biden's agenda will be interpreted as selling out. 
I certainly think that's the case if what we see as the next step is the formation of small closed groups, uh, very inner-directed uh, sort of groups. Uh, they'll be cut off more from reality. I've referred sometimes to these sorts of groups as operating under a sort of subjective reality. Uh, their contact with the outside world or with people who disagree with them uh, would be very sharply uh, limited. So they, they, and people, the ones who are left, if they feel that they've been betrayed by other people who joined them at protests and at the Capitol, and now those people have given up or have compromised, then the people who are left feel even more persecuted in effect. And I don't want to use the term paranoia because that's a, a psychiatric term, but they begin to depend on each other for information, for emotional support. And so I think that leads to an effect of very uh, hard core of true believers. Now that the rest of the people whose beliefs were really not quite as strong have in effect gone home. So if they're cutting themselves off from outside contact, do they develop a subjective reality like end of the world cults? There, I think there's some resemblances between cults and these tiny, small conspiratorial groups. And in my op-ed, I cited a book that's very famous among social scientists by Leon Festinger and others called When Prophecy Fails. And that was from the 50s. 1950s, and it still, I assure you, it still sticks in the minds of all of us academics who study these things. And he followed a, a, an end of the world cult, and they kept predicting the day that the world would end. This is fairly common practice. And the day would come and the world would not end. And for a while they would say, oh, we just made a little mistake. It's actually the next month, but it, the world never ended. So you'd think that at that point, you might think if you were a member of the group, hmm, there is something wrong with this prophecy. Maybe we are wrong, but no, they didn't. They just became even more interdirected, even more convinced that they were right. So I can't say that's an exact comparison, but it does give you something to think about. And we have seen something similar with many people who are supporters of QAnon. Uh, they have just made adjustments. And there's, uh, there, there are quite a few people who believe that uh, maybe January 6th wasn't the right date, but March 4th will be. And uh, I'm wondering whether we're likely to see more uh, terrorist activities on March 4th. Well, uh, that's going to be a very interesting sort of question as to the uh, extent of influence of these kinds of appeals, uh, largely communicated anonymously via social media and through these sorts of QAnon channels as to whether people will actually act on these sorts of calls to, uh, to action. I think that a QAnon call to action is quite different, frankly, from uh, a sitting president calling people to come to Washington and then calling on them to march uh, to the Capitol. I think that kind of call from the highest leader in the country uh, has much, much more of an effect on people's behavior than a QAnon posting. But of course, the future will tell us. We have pretty much no time left, but uh, 
I'm just wondering about your thoughts about the partisan aspect of this. Um, how much of this is a question for the Biden administration to deal with, despite the opposition of senators like Hawley and Johnson? I think that the Biden administration does have a responsibility to deal with the issue. Uh, it is a very difficult, very, very thorny issue, but I'm encouraged by the fact that the administration has announced an intention to try to deal with it. It's beginning to appoint people in the administration who, who will try to deal with the issue. It's going to be extremely difficult to deal with precisely because it is so contentious and so partisan. So I think it will be extremely important for the administration to always demonstrate objectivity uh, in its analysis of what's going on and to resist calls from the you know, people vehemently against uh, the far right movements uh, to act without investigating very carefully in terms of what is going on. You know, we've said many times this was uh, a distrust of government, uh, 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 a denial of the legitimacy of the government that's been going on actually for decades. Uh, this is not just a sudden eruption of these sorts of sentiments. And so I think in order to understand it, we do need to go back. We need to go back to Ruby Ridge. We need to go back to Waco, uh, to, and, to this and, and kind of to distrust of authority that frankly came to a head. Uh, and I have to leave it there. It's been fascinating conversation. Thank you so much, Dr. Martha Crenshaw. Thank you. Thank you so much. And that brings us to the end of today's show. If you're new to our program and would like to hear more, you can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. We're also available as a podcast on iTunes and anywhere else that podcasts are available. And there are links to all of our past shows on our website, LeonardLopateAtLarge.com. If you'd like to comment on a show or just to say hello, my email address is LeonardLopate at WBAI.org. Before I sign off today, I'd like to take just a minute to ask you to support the station. We're hoping that all of our listeners who have the means to do so will step up and make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by going online right now to give to WBAI.org or by calling 516-620-3602 to help keep the unique content we bring you on this program coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. Remember, WBAI relies 100% on listener donations. If you tune in regularly to Leonard Lopate at Large or even if you've discovered our in-depth one-hour interviews just recently, why not help us keep this show in this historic station, the only one in the New York radio uh, area that's entirely listener-sponsored on the air. Go online to give to WBAI.org, call 516-620-3602, and to everyone who stepped up to support this station in the name of our show, thank you so much. We're off for the next couple of days, but I hope you'll join us for Tuesday's show when Judith Pearson will discuss her new book, From Shadows to Life, a biography of the cancer survivorship movement. We'll see you then.